Today on Simple Truths, Pastor Xavier Reese and the rise and fall of the Antichrist. These were Satan's threats against God. You remember Isaiah 14? I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He wants to become the ruler. He's serious. God finishes says you'll be brought down to hell. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Today, mankind's biggest concerns seem to be combating global warming and establishing peace on earth in order to ensure the longevity of mankind. But unfortunately, God already has a much different plan in mind for man's future. As he continues his series in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Pastor Xavier shares a glimpse of what that plan is. Let's listen. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. The message is entitled, The Certainty of the Antichrist. Paul attempted to comfort the Thessalonians regarding the false teaching about the day of the Lord in the opening three verses by reminding them of what they knew. Also by reproving them for what they had believed and then re-instructing them on what they had forgotten. Something that you and I continue to have to go over. These things are applicable to us. Having done that, Paul continues to show them the folly of their believing that the day of the Lord had come. By focusing on the man of sin or lawlessness, the son of perdition from verse 4 down to 8. Now Paul gives us three vital facts about the man of lawlessness who will be the principal character during this period known as the day of the Lord. Let me read verses 4 through 8. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And I believe Paul almost communicated with that, that tone of voice because he's like a parent reminding his children in almost a, a kind of a mild rebuke saying, What's the matter with you? You knew these things. What would possess you? Did you forget already? Don't you remember what I told you last week? It's faithfulness. Here's the three vital facts about the man of lawlessness who will be the principal character during this period known as the day of the Lord. First, verse 4 and 5, Paul describes the character of the man of lawlessness. Secondly, in verse 6 and 7, Paul declares the restraint Hindering the appearance of the man of lawlessness. And then verse 8, Paul discloses the devastation regarding the man of lawlessness. He describes his character, declares the restraint, and discloses the devastation. Let's begin here in verse 4 and 5 as we look to Paul describing the character of the man of lawlessness. Notice first, 
His attitude is marked by rebellion. He will decide to oppose God. It's a decision. Notice, notice the words. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. The word oppose means to, to be opposite to, to be adverse, or to withstand. It's something, it's antagonistic, it's resisting. The man will be the epitome of all that is contrary to God. The word is used of the spirit and the flesh being contrary to one another in Galatians 5.17. In your spirit, in your flesh, as well as mine, they're completely opposite. The flesh wants to live, and the spirit wants to put the flesh to death daily. They're in opposition, it's a tension. Notice, secondly, he will desire to be above God, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is worship. The source is pride, don't miss it. The word exalt means to lift up over something haughty or to be insolent towards another. The word appears three times in the New Testament here. And the other two times is when Paul describes God's purpose in giving him a thorn in the flesh so that he doesn't exalt himself above measure in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So it's in the positive or the negative, the context will determine. God has given to some of you some very difficult thorns in the flesh because he knows if he doesn't have those on your life to work with you, you would be exalted above measure. All of us certainly have some form of other thorn that God gives to us to keep us dependent upon Him. See, the things that God will take you through the water, through the fire, you will not drown, you will not burn. And when you come out, you're going to look more like Jesus. That's always good. Satan's deceptive lies is, oh, look what God did to you. No, no, look how, God, how much God loves you, that He loves you so much that He's giving you this and many other things to keep you dependent on Him. To trust Him. To come to the end of yourselves. All of us. Notice the purpose is power. Not only the source pride, but the purpose is power. The word worship means whatever is religiously honored. An object of worship. The word was used of Paul as he was in Athens in Acts 17, 23. And he used it to describe the Athenians with their altars, their temples, and their statutes. The central idea is that of adoration and dedication. Usually we identify this with pagans who go up to a mountain and they idolatry kiss an idol and they leave their gifts there, stuff like that. But this is the whole central idea of adoration and dedication. What is the master passion in your life? Your God could be sitting in the parking lot taking two stalls up. It can be sitting next to your wife, your child. It can be your career. You understand what I'm talking about? None of those things are, are, are bad or wrong in and of themselves. The man of sin and lawlessness defies all. Don't miss that little word. The middle letter of the word sin. Remember, I. The trinity of darkness, me, myself, and I. All men have this bent. No exception. Someone takes a picture of you, a group picture, and you're waiting for it to be processed and revealed. Who's the first one you look for? You. And then you look and you say, oh, that doesn't look like me. No, that does look. That's you. Because <laughs> we think of ourselves more highly. You see, but I'm not very photogenic. No, this is what you are. <laughs> Notice, secondly, 
His actions are marked by self-enthronement in the temple of God, so that he sits as God. His actions are only the product of the process of his attitudes. Parents, you can identify here. You've raised children. You know that the most important thing is to deal with your child's attitudes. Because if you can change their attitudes, you don't have to worry about the conduct and the actions. But if all you're interested in changing their actions and their conduct, then that attitude is going to be manifested somewhere else. I disciplined my children more severe for attitude than actions when they were growing up. The most important thing. His actions are only the product of the process of his attitudes. Now put that in your own life as a Christian. Your actions will only be the process of your attitude towards God, His Word, yielding to Him, and trusting Him. It's a continuous habit. If you're practicing bad spiritual habits, you're going to ultimately respond that way in times of emergencies, in times of danger. He presumes on His authority. He sits, it says. The position of sitting is symbolic of rest and ruling control. But it's temporary. By the way, these were Satan's threats against God. You remember Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14? Listen to him. God says to him, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. God finishes says, You'll be brought down to hell. This is an actual fulfillment of Satan's threats. He wants to become the ruler. He wants to become the one. He's serious. You want to cross-reference that, look at Ezekiel 28. Always remember those two passages. Isaiah 14, then double it. 28, Ezekiel. Two great passages of Satan's own words as he rebels against God in heaven. Now notice, he presumes on his person. Two little words. As God. Denying his own human mortality. Man today thinks he lived forever, right? No, everybody dies. You ever known anybody that hasn't died? I only know two people in the Bible. That's all. All die. But notice also by deifying himself before the world. He pollutes the place of worship. In the temple of God. 30. He defiles the inner sanctuary of the holy place in the most holy. The word is nows, the inner shrine. Declaring clearly here in this verse that the temple will be rebuilt again and must be. No one could believe that Israel was going to be a nation before 48. The Bible said it would be, and it was. He is fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel. Jesus quoted that in Matthew twenty four fifteen. When you see the abomination spoken by Daniel the prophet, flee to the wilderness. Now, many times prophecy is a twofold fulfillment, short term, long term. Sometimes it has more than that. Many times in typologies. Antiochus Epiphany is a type of the Antichrist, the lawless man of sin, the son of perdition. In 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphany set up an altar of Zeus in the temple, killed a pig on it, and forced the priest to eat pig's meat. This incited the Maccabean revolt, by the way, which you get 
Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. God miraculously provided oil for all the lanterns during those days. But Antiochus Epiphany didn't fulfill this to its ultimate end. There is an ultimate fulfillment. We know this because Jesus said, when you see, speak in the future still. Now, Gaius Caligua also attempted to put a statue in the temple in 40 AD. That didn't fulfill it. Some say, well, how about 70 AD? Titus came in, leveled the temple. Well, if Titus fulfilled it in 70 AD, then Jesus should have come back 1,290 days after that because Daniel 12, 11 says that once you see this abomination of desolation, you can count down 1,290 days, look up to these, and Jesus will be coming back. So this is a very key marking for the time of tribulation and great tribulation, right in the middle. And there's a countdown there, if you're around. So we see that it's still future. It's been fulfilled partially in type, but there's an ultimate fulfillment to come, still future, even on our day. Now notice thirdly here, his appeal is marked by subtle deception in verse 4. Showing himself that he is God. First, by his policy of peace. You remember Daniel 9, 27. Israel will make a one-week, seven-year covenant with him. They will initiate it. Seventy weeks of prophecy were given to Daniel. An incredible prophecy. Sixty-nine of those weeks have been fulfilled. From March 14, 445 B.C., based on a 360-day calendar. Projected from that day to April the 6th, 32 A.D., Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the coal of a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 to the very day. By the way, Zechariah 9.9 has a twofold fulfillment. Read it very carefully. Many people don't teach that when they teach it. It's fulfilled, first of all, when Jesus rode in, but there's the future fulfillment. It wasn't completely fulfilled. Read it very carefully. Jesus told the Jews, I came... Or I have come in my Father's name, and you have not received me. There is one coming in his own name. Him you will receive. He was talking about the Antichrist. Remember, the first three and a half years, he officiates the office of instead of Messiah. The word anti has two full meaning. Instead of, and then the last half after the abomination, it's against Christ. He will just be a tornado out of control. But notice also, he will help build the temple as part of the covenant. This is very, very clear. We have already seen that he's going to sit in the temple. Now, many people say that's a problem because the Dome of the Rock sits in the Temple Mount. And you know the whole politics and everything else with the Temple Mount, very, very touchy. Now, in 67, when the Jews took Jerusalem for the first time, since 70, they gave the Temple Mount back to the Muslims in good faith. The Dome of the Rock is there. It's the second holiest place to Mecca. And if something would happen to it, there truly would be a bloodbath. So many people say, well, I can't, the Bible's wrong because the Dome of the Rock's there and it's not going to happen. Well, the Bible tells us it's going to happen. There is a Dr. Kaufman who has done many studies and others who have been with him, geological surveys and that. And they believe especially Dr. Coffin, believes that the true temple of Solomon did not sit where the Dome of the Rocks is, but to the north of it where the Dome of the Spirits is. And therefore, the temple and the Dome of the Rock could exist side by side in the same mountain without any need of its destruction. That's a very interesting presupposition 
and theory. Now, if the scriptures substantiate that it goes from theory and opinion to fact. In Ezekiel chapter 42 verse 20, Ezekiel tells us that there will be a wall all around the temple to separate the holy from the profane. How interesting. And you remember what John said in Revelation 11, 1 and 2 when he deals with the temple. John tells us that the outer court has been given to the Gentiles for 42 months. Three and a half years. Let me propose to you that this goes from speculation and theory to fact because of the scriptures. I believe the temple of Solomon was to the north. It will be built there. A wall will be built between the Dome of the Rock and the holy place, the temple of Jews. And they too will exist side by side to the tribulation and great tribulation. That part where the Dome of the Rock sits right in the court of the Gentile. How interesting. But notice also, by his power over death and man does he deceive. Not only through the miraculous things he's going to be able to do to be able to do all this political stuff and religious stuff. He will survive a deadly head wound, assassination attempt. Revelation 13, verse 3 and 14. His right eye will be darkened. His right arm will wither. And they'll say, who can make war against this man? He will overcome man through the supernatural powers of Satan. This is very, very clear in Revelation 3, 2, 4, 15 through 18. Directly from the power of Satan, he will slander God and slay the saints. Revelation 13, 5 through 7. But remember, these saints are not the saints of the church. These are the saints through the tribulation who come to know Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 and 3, the message to the churches. Chapter 4 and 5, the church is raptured, is in heaven. And the saints who are slain are under the fifth seal saying, How long, O Lord? And he says, Kick back. There's more of you to be killed before the time's up. Who are those? Tribulation saints. John says, Who are these? He says, You don't know. <laughs> these are the ones that come out of the great tribulation. Don't put the church in the tribulation. Listen, study the manuscript. Chapter 4 and 5. Learn the song. Learn the posture on your face. So when you get up there, you're not walking around and saying, Hey, what are you doing? I plan on being there. But notice thirdly, by his political preeminence, he will rise to power by a ten-nation confederacy, the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image. Revelation 17, 12, Daniel 7, 24, also Daniel 2 tells you about it. We know the common market has existed for a while now. We know that there's been more than ten, and they keep jostling around and switching. The ultimate will be ten. The common market is a power to be reckoned with today. It will end up with ten. He will rule over the ten-nation confederacy, Revelation 17.3 says, and then he will turn around and he will destroy the harlot, the woman who helps him get to that position, the religious church of the ecumenical movement. Babylon, religious and commercial. Revelation 17 and 18. He wipes them out. In fact, he's called the little horn in Daniel 7, 8, and 20. A horn is always a symbol of power. But it's for a short time. But notice fourthly here 
that his affirmation is nothing new. Verse 5, Paul's is not new. Listen to what he says. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul sat there and laid it all off. I said, don't you remember? I told you. What's the matter with you? Paul's a spiritual father saying, what's the matter with you guys? I've told you in the first letter. Don't be all depressed by your death there with the Lord. And when he comes back, he'll come in the clouds. He'll wrap you up there and you'll all be together. Comfort one another with these words. And by the way, your children will lie so that they shouldn't take you as a thief in the night. What's the matter with you? He told them at the front of the church. He told them the first letter. He's telling them the third time. Does that sound familiar, parents? <laughs> you remember Absalom, David's son? He was a man of evil character, much like the Antichrist. He was sitting at the gate of the city as the people would come and say, You know, if I were king, if I were ruling, I would listen to all your cases. They'd be taken care of. Then he would take the people's hand and kiss them. He says he stole the hearts of the people. This is what this man's going to do. In a way that the world has never, ever seen. Ever. The similarities of the man of sin or lawless man and those who reject God and Jesus as Savior and Lord are interesting. Let me give you some. All rebellion against God is marked by a spirit that is contrary to God and His Spirit. You remember 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23? Saul disobeyed Samuel and he got into sacrifice. He tried blaming the people. And Samuel said, listen, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken to the fat of rams. For rebellion, listen, is a sin of witchcraft and different spirits. Whoa. Anytime you are rebelling against God... I don't care whether it's nicely done. Well, you know, I just don't believe that the Bible was written by man or that it was written by man, not God. You know, you can rebel nicely. You can rebel violently. You can whatever. It doesn't make it. When you are not agreeing with the word of God, you are in rebellion by believing another spirit. And it's not the spirit of God. It's real simple. There's left and right, up and down, black and white, truth and error. You need to understand that. If you don't know Jesus Christ this afternoon. All rejection of God as creator and redeemer leads to self-exaltation and self-worship. This may identify you then. Then you are sitting as God in your body, which is to be the temple of God. And you're making yourself out to be God. I don't believe God created me. You know, I came from evolution. And I'm a product of everything I am. Really? And this body is to be the temple of God. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're sitting in this body, in the temple of God, as if you're God. That's spitting in God's face. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your body is the temple of God. All who hold this philosophy fall into self-deception. Telling themselves that they can live any way they want and escape death and the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto every man to die once and then the judgment. No one escapes it. Everybody can boast about it. Everybody can say what they want. But God has the last word. And so Paul described the character of the man of lawlessness. But what a parallel to everyone who rejects God on a lesser scale. Pastor Xavier Reese and the Downfall of Pride and Deception. 
And you can find this program online to hear any portion you may have missed. Just browse for today's date in the radio listings link at CalvaryChapelPasadena.com. Now, we'll be continuing this topic on our next broadcast as well. But if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, you can pick up a copy of this message on CD. And as always, it's available for only $4. And this is a great way to share this ministry with others. And once again, the title to ask for is The Certainty of the Antichrist. Or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for including the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us keep track of the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. What role does the church play in the last days? And that's coming up on the next edition of Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 